Hi everybody, this is Gino Vanelli. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program. Today on Rainbow Country, in Hour One, I chat with Justin Ling, author of the new book, Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice, and the system that failed Toronto's queer community. Plus, Rainbow Country contributor... Musician and activist Anna Goodmanis shares her views on racial challenges in the LGBT community. And in Hour 2, music from LGBT recording artists, independent recording artists, plus voices that you know and love in classic disco, classic 80s, classic house. Stay tuned for Gay Talk Radio right here on Rainbow Country. Hi, this is Emily Saliers from Indigo Girls. Hey everyone, this is Chris Harder, porn star, burlesque performer, and the creator of Porn to Be a Star. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Rainbow Country in 2021. As I like to call it, a little gay radio show working to give voice to the LGBT community and beyond. As always, I am your tour guide through Rainbow Country. I'm producer and host, Mark Tara. By the way, Rainbow Country originates from CIUT-FM in Toronto, the sound of your city. And now proudly in syndication on Bombshell Radio, Love Your Indie, a 24-7 streaming outlet. And real music, real ideas, real people, CKUWFM in Winnipeg. The Juice, CJUCFM in Whitehorse. The Mighty, CKCUFM in Ottawa. The voice of the Halliburton Highlands, Canoe FM, Halliburton, Ontario's Cottage Country. Located in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, CFCR FM, Newfoundland's only alternative, CHMR FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. And the latest station to carry Rainbow Country, proudly broadcasting to Kingston, Ontario since 1922, CFRCFM in Kingston. So whether you're listening in the Yukon, the Prairies, Ontario's Cottage Country, Southern Ontario, down to Buffalo, New York, the East Coast of Canada in Newfoundland, or online, it's because of you. Downloading, streaming, but ultimately listening that has taken this little gay program and made it into a syndicated radio show and a number one LGBT podcast. And last week, Rainbow Country was number two on Podomatic's gay and lesbian chart. So today, in Hour One, I'm joined by investigative journalist and author Justin Ling to talk about his new book, Missing from the Village, The story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice and the system that failed Toronto's queer 
community. And in hour two, music from LGBT artists, independent artists, plus voices that you know and love in classic disco, classic 80s, classic house. But up first, Rainbow Country contributor, musician, and activist, Anakin Manis shares her views on racial challenges in the LGBT community. In one of my first contributions to Rainbow Country, I called for the LGBTQ community in the GTA, and pretty much everywhere else, to actively combat anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism. But does that mean that only Black and Indigenous queers have to navigate racism from white queers? Sadly, no. The community has a long way to go. For starters, a 2019 article in Journal of Lesbian Studies describes the ways in which queer women of South Asian descent experience racial discrimination in the Toronto LGBTQ community. Author Sonali Patel writes that queer women's spaces are led by white feminists who do not understand the unique challenges faced by queer South Asian women, QSA for short. QSA are also not well represented in spaces and organizations for queer women of color. Notably, three quarters of study participants who had dated white women stated that they would not do so again because the white women lacked cultural competency and the willingness to learn. The participants also speak of broad dissatisfaction, not only with the gay village, bars, and pride, but also with queer events at universities and corporate spaces that tout diversity. Patel notes that the results of her recent study are in line with studies done in the U.S. A 2019 article on Global News Online speaks about the anti-Asian racism that prevails in the queer men's dating community. Author Arti Patel writes about the no-black, no-Asian demand commonly seen on gay dating apps. A participant interviewed by Patel also notes the so-called flip side, which is the fetishization of Asians. Malin Evans Sinclair, a black gay man who works as an inclusion, diversity, and equity facilitator, notes the dehumanization inherent in the use of certain phrases that I will not repeat here. Phrases which also add an element of, quote, assumed femininity, unquote, in the East Asian dating partner being sought. All of this predated the pandemic, which of course has seen overt acts of anti-Asian racism frequently make the headlines. We can safely assume that the LGBTQ community is seeing a similar rise in acts of overt anti-Asian racism. We can take one particular suggestion by Sonali Patel to heart by increasing the accountability of white LGBTQ individuals. Now is the time. Building back better means tearing down the racism in our queer community and rebuilding our structures in a way that truly honors and includes everyone. This is singer-songwriter and activist Anna Gutmanis for Rainbow Country. You can reach me at annagutmanis.com. Bill 7. To ban discrimination in employment, government services, and housing. Based on a person's sexual orientation was up for a vote at Queen's Park. Most NDP and Liberal MPPs supported the bill, but without some progressive conservative legislators backing, a divisive split could rack the province. Four PCs decided to break party ranks to vote with their conscience and support Bill 7. 
Cabinet Minister and MPP Dennis Timbrell did it to show solidarity for his beloved brother, the well-known drag queen, Rusty Ryan. And for me, a gay politician who was not yet out, I had to take a stand. We were known as the Gang of Four. I'm former Cabinet Minister and MPP Phil Gillies. The date, December 2nd, 1986, when LGBT rights came to Ontario. Hi, this is Mo Berg from The Pursuit of Happiness, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. tragic and resonant story of the disappearance of eight men, the victims of serial killer Bruce MacArthur from Toronto's queer community, and the failures of the social and political systems which allowed the cases to go unsolved for so long. Up next, investigative journalist Justin Ling joins me in conversation to talk about his new book, Missing from the Village. Author's Note There are two words in this book that may be controversial. The first word is the word queer. While once it was exclusively a slur, the word has been reappropriated to serve a very important function. As the acronym used to represent the broader spectrum of sexuality has expanded, from the simple LGBT to the more complicated LGBTQIA2+, or lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, two-spirit, and everything else, many have rightly pointed to how fraught it can be to encapsulate the incredibly diverse range of non-heterosexual and non-cisgender identities into a handful of letters. It feels that no matter how many letters are added, entire parts of that spectrum are captured under broad catch-alls, like trans, or must otherwise be happy being relegated to the plus sign. I have opted to simply use the word queer to represent every point along that spectrum. There are drawbacks in trying to use a single word, much less a word that once went hand-in-hand with discrimination and violence. There is beauty in that, too. As a word we have reclaimed, we can define it as widely and as expansively as we choose. A word that used to mean exclusion can be inverted to be inclusive. The second word that will appear throughout the book, perhaps to some chagrin, is community. There is a very good argument to be made that even if there are communities of queer people, there is no queer community. I think this book is evidence of what a broader queer community looks like and where exactly that lack of community is so painfully evident. To that end, the use of those two words together, queer community, may be more aspirational than actual. A community is not a utopia, but it should be a space where outside prejudices are not welcome and where solidarity is a default. Unfortunately, that is not yet a reality. This book sits at an uneasy crossroads of these problems. 
I am a journalist, but I'm also a member of that community. This book is not an academic work. It is not an activist manifesto, nor is it a true crime book that spectates from afar. This book is an investigation of a tragedy of enormous proportions, which works to explain why it happened and to learn lessons on how to stop it from happening again. Justin Ling, hi. How are you? Good. I'm doing all right. I always say this to my guests, but thank you so much for being here to have your voice, your story be heard by the LGBT community and beyond. So thank you for that, especially when it comes to your your new book, Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice, and the system that failed Toronto's queer community. At the time of uh, our recording this interview, your book got as high as number two. It may have gotten to number one, I don't know. But I saw it was number two on Amazon.ca's Gay and Lesbian uh, philosophy chart. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you feel having a top two hit? I mean, great. I mean, the, the book I, I think is doing quite well. I, I'm not sure that I knew that it was a philosophy book, uh, before Amazon told me, but hey, listen, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll take what I can get. I, I think there's some, there's certainly some philosophy in it. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just happy that people are reading it and, and seeming to appreciate it. I often ask this question to creatives when they come on to talk about their their project. You are the author of Missing from the Village. For you, this book is about what? Yeah, the book is to some degree about, you know, my involvement in this story for the last five years, essentially. Um, but I think in many respects, it's supposed to be a book about a community that was targeted and that was failed pretty extensively and sort of what needs to happen to make sure that never occurs again. Right. So, you know, it, the book's trying to do a lot of things to be, to be totally honest. You know, the books, like I said, a little bit about my experience, you know, it is kind of a true crime book. It's a, it's a book about a serial killer. It's a book about, you know, the murders of, um, of eight men, but it's also in many respects, not, and I, I tried quite hard not to write a true crime book. True crime is a genre I don't really like all that much. I have a lot of misgivings about. And, you know, ultimately, I'm a journalist. So this book ended up being really focused on systems and policies and governments and policing and how we really, you know, deal with policing and deal with queer communities. So it's kind of, it's broad to say the least. Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice and the system that failed Toronto's queer community. That's quite the title. Why this? Yeah, I, I usually just say, I usually just say Missing from the Village. Yeah. I find I, everything else is just the subtitle, I think. Why this particular title? Yeah, it, it's funny. I think I, for you know, missing from the village was sort of a working title for a long time. Um, and I always imagined we'd pick something else to be honest. Um, but the more I sort of chatted about it, the more I realized it's sort of the, 
very appropriate title. I mean, this book is about eight men who disappeared from Toronto's queer community over seven years. And in a lot of respects, the word missing came up a lot. I think even more than you would have expected it to. You know, I, I talked to a lot of people who, you know, were close to these men who had to deal with not just them going missing and dealing with the missing person's investigation multiple times over the years, but then sort of dealing with just missing them daily, right? And for years and missing answers and, and missing the sort of, if not closure, at least finality of knowing what had happened. For years, police, I think, suggested and the media suggested and the city at large suggested that maybe they weren't really missing. Maybe these men weren't in fact missing. Maybe they left. Maybe they went somewhere else of their own accord. And I think really focusing on that word missing hits home, hopefully, in a lot of respects, just how kind of torturous those years were for a lot of these people. And, you know, even in the, in the, in the prologue and the preface, I sort of grapple with the word community and village and, you know, what the LGBTQ community really is and what it means and what it was promised to do and, you know, whether or not it really lived up to those promises of, of community, of sort of collective defense, of looking out for one another. And that's really what the village was supposed to be in a lot of respects. So, you know, I guess there's, if you really want to drill down into it, there's a whole lot, there's a lot of, maybe there's a lot of philosophy behind even just the title. Mm. Missing from the village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, who was or is Bruce MacArthur? Yeah, so you know, Bruce MacArthur was, well, he is, you know, he's he's locked up and there's a right now still alive, um, but who knows for how much longer. You know, Bruce MacArthur, you know, for years was in and of the queer community. Um, he came out later in life, moved to not far from the gay village in Toronto and spent a lot of his time hanging out at the coffee shops and the bars, the restaurants on church street in the Trish and Wellesley village. And in some respects was as nondescript and unassuming as anyone you'd walk past on the street. You know, he had friends, you know, he, you know, he had a partner. He was, if not well known, at least recognizable, just one of the faces, you know, in the community. But there was obviously something quite different there. In 2001, he attacked a man he knew, an actor, in his apartment on Halloween evening. Um, he had attacked several men, you know, while hooking up with them in his home, in his van, over the years. And ultimately in 20, 2010, you know, kidnapped and murdered his, his first victim, ultimately killing, you know, eight men and eluding police for, you know, seven years. Even as people in the community were pointing the finger at him and suggesting that he could be involved or at least have information 
um, that you know might explain these disappearances. Uh, he was even as he was abducting these men and committing these crimes, a man accused him of assault, and it was old, and he ultimately was investigated, you know, interrogated by police, and released. So, you know, the book is to some degree about him. I mean, not to a great degree. You know, it's a little bit about his backstory and about you know, the things he did. But you know, ultimately, the book's about a lot more and a lot, and, and spends much more time looking at you know the community, the village, the police, the city, than it does looking at him. But unfortunately thanks to what he did, you know, he's sort of at the center of this whole story. So between 2010, 2017, a series of men went missing from Toronto's gay village. Like you were, you were just talking about, they were South Asian, Middle Eastern, Caucasian, eight victims. But it wasn't until Andrew Kinsman went missing that everything came to a head. Was it, a note, a message written down by Andrew Kinsman that broke everything open? Is that accurate yeah, to say? Yeah, it is. It, it, it's an interesting, you know, question about why it took Andrew Kinsman for this case to get solved. I think many people, understandably, will say it took a white man to go missing for Toronto police to care. You know, so, you know, just to really quickly sketch out, you know, what sort of happened here between 2010 and 2012, three went, three men went missing South Asian, like you said, or Middle Eastern um, police started an investigation that ultimately went nowhere and, and shut it down. Even after that, men continued to go missing. You know, there was, um, you know, a, a refugee from the Middle East. There was a Sri Lankan, Refugee failed refugee claim, and unfortunately, there was a, a white man who was um, you know, housing and housing insecure and street involved. Um, there was a um, you know a Turkish man who disappeared, and you know, unfortunately, the investigation didn't link it back to those other cases. So you had this really disparate you know group of of men, many of them racialized, but not all of them. Um, some of them you know, marginalized or, um, you know, living without immigration status or dealing with addiction or drug use. Some of them not. Some of them, you know, with good, stable careers, wide, you know, wide groups of friends, you know. Um, so each of these men had a very, very different life. There was commonalities for sure. Um, but looking back at all of them, it's frustrating to realize how many opportunities police had to tie them all together. And it's frustrating to realize that the friends and family of these men did spend a lot of time advocating for police to take their disappearances seriously, to really run a fulsome investigation, to, you know, knock down doors if need be, to figure out what had happened to them. And unfortunately, in many respects, police either didn't do that or didn't do enough of it, that, you know, obviously to catch you know, the man who had, who had taken them. When Andrew Kinsman disappeared, I, I don't believe that police were gearing up to take it as seriously as they ought to have had it not been for Andrew Kinsman's friends and family. They mobilized with mm. incredible speed and purpose mm -hmm. to, and I think knowing full well the ways in which those previous investigations had failed, Andrew's friends 
would not take no for an answer. They blanketed it. But didn't, yeah. but didn't Andrew also work at Toronto People with AIDS Foundation, I believe? Or That's another... right. Yeah. And a lot of his colleagues were instrumental in, mm-hmm. you know, standing up an organization of doing those postering campaigns, of, you know, reaching out to the media, of, yeah. um, you know, organizing on Facebook, of searching parks and ravines. You know, there was a philosophy from those friends and family and colleagues that they were going to put posters up on every city block. And that every time one poster came down, there was a poster missing or was peeled off or blown away that two went up to replace it. Thousands and thousands of posters over the course of, you know, six or seven months blanketed the city and really forced the city to realize the men were going missing and, and, and had not been found. I've had an officer who worked on this case tell me point blank, listen, you know, would we have investigated this seriously? Yes, even without any sort of pressure. But did that pressure force us to take it seriously faster and to get on this with, with more urgency and speed? Yes. And thanks to that speed that was brought on by his friends and family and advocates, um, police managed to get crucial security footage that may have been lost if they had waited. And ultimately, you know, the note you mentioned earlier, Andrew Kinsman had written in a note in his calendar about a 3 p.m. coffee date with Bruce, with a man named Bruce. And it was that note that gave them a really narrow window window to go review that security footage to find out, um, you know, the exact time and you know to to find out you know when he had left and to identify the vehicle he got in, and you know the idea on that vehicle is ultimately what led them to Bruce MacArthur, and which is what led to a massive surveillance investigation that ultimately led to his arrest. So. You know, I'm not exaggerating when I say that the folks around Andrew Kinsman, those who knew him best, were probably, you know, not ex- they, they don't get exclusive credit, but get an enormous amount of credit yeah. for catching this guy. Yeah. Missing from the village, the system that failed Toronto's queer community, the system that failed Toronto's queer community, was that system the police system? I think it's wider than that. I mean, I think policing doesn't exist sort of detached from a city. It's not some sort of naturally occurring regime, right? We, we create policing through municipal, provincial, federal legislation, um, you know, through the criminal code, through city budgets. We decide what policing is, right? I mean, in many respects, policing is also just the officers who work there, which is to some degree beyond our control. But, you know, the system was designed to not only protect everybody equally, but to offer greater protection for those who need greater protection, right? And in many respects, that's the queer community. And in, I think it's fair to say that protection has often been deficient. It's, it's, not, it's not actually matched the level of threat facing the community. It's actually been less than what other communities get. Consistently, Toronto police have failed to do enough to make sure that marginalized individuals, that racialized men, that trans people, especially trans women of color, sex workers, drug users, street-involved people, the city and the police have done an inadequate job of protecting those people. Yet, even at the same time as police have been negligent in their duty to, to protect those folks, 
police have been there at every corner to police them. Toronto police are, are, you know, constantly and have constantly been for decades over prosecuting, over charging for, you know, vagrancy laws, for drug, uh, you know, drug laws, for sex work laws in and around the village. That includes morality policing. You know, many people might think back to the bathhouse raids, but in many respects, the bathhouse raids have continued to, in a different, you know, shape to present day. I mean, the most recent actual bathhouse raid was, was in two, you know, 2000 against um, a, a party for lesbian women. Yeah, pussy you know, there are, Exactly, the Pussy Palace raids. You know, there were still arrests going on in parks across Toronto, even as these men were going missing. So to be a queer person in Toronto means there's a pretty good chance that if you are murdered or if you go missing, your case will be less likely to get solved than a straight person, yet you're more likely to be targeted or charged for, you know, nonviolent offenses. So that's a really weird disconnect. That's a really frustrating disconnect. And a system that produces that result is a system that's not working. You know, if you go back and do some of the math on violence against queer people in Toronto, in, there were years when like a, roughly a fifth or a quarter of all homicides in the city of Toronto were targeting gay men or trans women. They went unsolved at a significantly higher rate than the city average. And yet, despite that, police were kicking down doors and arresting men in their own homes for prostitution. You know, how does that system comport with what we keep saying the system ought to be doing, which is protecting the people who need it the most? It doesn't work. And I think this case is emblematic of the fact that in many respects, things haven't changed since the 1970s or 1980s. Justin Ling, well said. On that note, let's take a break. We will be right back. Hi, I'm Garrett Conley, author of Boy Erased, a memoir. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. has been going strong now for five seasons. And over the course of the last few years, I've had on some interesting guests with powerful projects that they've come on to this little gay show to share with us. And I thought I'd take this time to spotlight some of those projects right now. So let's start off with music. And this guest has not been on the show. I would love her to be on the show, but she has not. It's a record that I have been listening to over the last little while. Kylie Minogue and her current record is called Disco. If you want a fun record to put on to just to dance, or maybe you're doing housework, or maybe you just want to lighten the mood and lift your spirits, it's a good, fun dance record. Disco, Kylie Minogue. I highly recommend. And by the way, she just made UK history by being the first female artist to have five consecutive number one records over the course of five decades. Well done. Okay, for all you book fans, here's one for you. 
outrageous misfits. Female impersonator Craig Russell and his wife, Lori Russell Edie, from author Brian Bradley. Brian Bradley will be a guest on Rainbow Country in January 2021. Here's a synopsis of the book. Craig Russell was an internationally admired entertainer and actor known for his outrageous impersonations of some of Hollywood's greatest female celebrities like Mae West, Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, Carol Channing, and Judy Garland, just to name a few. Lori Russell Eady, a shy theater lover, was Craig's number one fan and eventually his wife. Five stars on Amazon.ca, where it's available. Again, the title, Outrageous Misfits, by Brian Bradley. My name is Charles Officer, and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Justin Ling, you are a journalist. Your writings have been featured in Vice News, BuzzFeed, The Globe and Mail, The National Post, just to name a few. I'm curious to know, how how did you get turned on to journalism in the first place? How did that happen for you? I mean, frankly, there was not a, there was not a whole lot of other paths ahead of me. I mean, coming out of high school, I was terrible at everything from math sciences to the only thing I was good at was history and English. My first job out of high school was at a local radio station doing news. And uh, I, I really don't think there was a lot of other option. There was a lot, not a, other, there was not a lot of other options ahead of me that I wanted to pursue. Um, so it was just sort of a natural fit. And frankly, I think I'm pretty good at it. So I, 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 I feel like I might stick with it. <laughs> Did you always want to be a writer? I think so. I mean, um, it's tough because, you know, thinking back about it, I don't know that I always knew what I wanted to write. Um, yes, it was the thing I was good at. I mean, I, I, I could have tried to be an engineer like my father wanted me to, um, but I don't think I was going to be, ever be able to do that math. So writing is the one thing I'm good at. And, and you know, I think over the years I've... Um, oscillate a bit about what I like writing about and where I feel like I make the most impact. Um, but I think this book was maybe the sort of culmination of that. I mean, I, I felt, you know, good about pursuing, you know, exactly, you know, what I ended up getting at with this book. And I, um, I think unfortunately a lot of you know, folks in this industry don't spend as much time on topics that, you know, about, how our systems fail people who are there were designed to protect. Unfortunately, I think there's still a lot of folks in my industry who, um, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, writing about the, 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 the sport that is politics and, and not enough about the ways in which politics actually impact regular people. Hmm. So your reporting tends to focus on stories and issues that are under covered 
and misunderstood. You were working on the Bruce MacArthur case for what, like five years? Yeah, five years. How did this story come to your attention then? So in 2013, Toronto police made the announcement that they suspected that these three missing persons cases, at that point there were only three, um, were in fact connected. And that based on the profile of the three missing men, there were so many similarities that police suspected a link. Um, they didn't say the word serial killer. They didn't even suggest there was foul play. They just said they suggested there was a there was a connection there. And I remember at that time, like I think almost everybody in the queer community in Toronto and abroad, because at that point I was living in Montreal, but was traveling pretty frequently to Toronto. I think everybody had that knee jerk reaction of there is a serial killer in the village, and I think everybody just was waiting for there to be another victim. And unfortunately, that sort of concern petered out. It just sort of dissipated. You know, there was no follow-up by the media. There was no follow-up by the cops. They, in fact, shut that investigation down just about six months after they made the announcement, maybe seven months. Um, you know, there was no pressure from the community for answers. There was, going forward, beyond the friends and family of the missing men, there was no consistent pressure being put on by the community at large for the police to continue this investigation. So they shut it down and nobody followed up. And there was no sort of continued application um, to try and get um, you know, answers or resolution. So when, you know, years on from that, and admittedly, I was, I think in many respects, just as guilty. I forgot about it like many other people did. But in 2015, it was actually during a federal election that I was covering. I had a down day, just a quiet day where nothing was really happening. And, you know, the memory of that story popped into my head, just like a lightning bolt. And, you know, I even remember, I remember with great clarity the exact day that this happened. Um, And it, I just sat there at my desk thinking, how is it that I've not heard anything else about this. And, you know, a Google search confirmed that there had been nothing. There had been no update, no follow-up, no continued pressure. And something about that just struck me as incredibly wrong because, you know, like I said, we, we knew there was a serial killer. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, you know, three men of that profile going missing over a two-year period from the same geographic area and having, you know, no evidence of what had happened to them, no credit card, um, you know, transaction, uh, no phone call, no nothing, no spotting, no sighting of them. Um, over for, you know, in four, three, four, five years, that was the sign for me that there was a serial killer and everyone had forgotten about it. So it, it was, you know, in that moment, I decided I was going to revisit it. And, you know, I spent the next two years, I wish I had done it frankly, quicker. But over the next two years, I spent a lot of time following up with those friends and family, looking through other missing persons reports for possibly connected cases, looking at unsolved homicides, looking at serial killers who had been caught or suspected over the years, um, and, you know, basically haranguing the police for some level of update. Why do you think Toronto police didn't pay more attention to those voices from the village saying that there was or there could potentially be a serial killer targeting Toronto's yeah. village. It's tough because in some respects they did. In many other respects they didn't. So one thing that I really 
gained an appreciation of during this, working on this book, was the degree to which the police were willing to explain away these disappearances mm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's start at the very beginning. When these men went missing, there was the requisite sort of base level missing persons investigation, you know, the credit card checks, the checks on their social media, their email, so on and so forth. When nothing turned up, police moved on. And there unfortunately was just not an adequate follow-up after the fact. When in 2012 came around, Toronto police set up a sizable investigation with probably about a dozen officers and a, you know, a dedicated budget and, um, you know, a dedicated task force to investigate one of the disappearances thanks to a tip that had come in from Europe about an online cannibalism ring. It ended up being nonsense, as we know. But in that task force, a very, you know, a couple of very smart and enterprising investigators found connections between that one missing persons case and the two others. And in that moment, links those three missing persons cases for the first time. That was really great work. That was really smart, good detective work. Unfortunately, the Toronto Police Service wasn't terribly interested in three missing persons cases that could be connected. Once they realized that that cannibalism ring was all nonsense, they, they, they significantly scaled down the investigation. Mm-hmm. The officers that, were, that remained did a really good job. They, they brought Bruce MacArthur in. They, they found him. They investigated him. They listened to the community members who said, go talk to Bruce MacArthur. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they just didn't, I, I, I believe... They didn't have the resources or the time or the staff to adequately vet, you know, what his statements were and to spend that time really tearing apart his story and other people's stories as well. And and really getting to the the heart of the matter. Unfortunately, you know, about, like I said, seven months after that interview, the whole task force was shut down. Mm -hmm. And when I was following up years later, I kept getting this idea that maybe from the police that maybe they vacated their lives. Maybe they packed their suit. I mean, they, maybe they, the idea was maybe they went back home or because they were queer or in the closet or whatever, they just took off and they couldn't stand to live this life anymore. But it was, it was so absurd. They didn't pack a suitcase. They didn't, you know, bring their passport. They didn't withdraw a bunch of money. They didn't bring their credit card. You know, there was no evidence of the idea that these men had just fled. And if they had fled to where, and this, this is, I think, where, you know, a fundamental disconnect happened between the police and the community. The community would tell you, we don't do that. Why would, why would I come? Like, you know, hypothetically, I am you know, a refugee from Afghanistan. I fled civil war. I fled a country where unfortunately it's still illegal to be gay and where that punishment either by the state or by individuals still frequently happens. I've come to Canada and I spend my time, my evenings, my weekends in the gay village where I'm accepted at least to some degree and where I feel at home. Why would I leave that behind with, and take nothing with me? It just didn't make sense, right? So when I really started butting my head up against that assumption, I think I realized that there was just this latent belief that this was normal for queer people, especially, you know, immigrant queer people. And that, you know, without continued pressure, that assumption would just sort of stand. And unfortunately that assumption proved really deadly, to be honest. And it took more men disappearing for them to be snapped out of it. 
The lead investigator for this, for the Bruce MacArthur case was Hank Exinga. Did you interview him? Yeah, I've spoken to Hank many times over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, And how did you find, did you find him forthcoming and stuff? Yeah, you know, I, I think I deal with a lot of cops, especially in this country. And there is a culture of conservatism in Canadian policing that believes you should say as little as possible, deal with the public rarely, if ever, speak to journalists only as a last resort. And I think it's really counterproductive, to be honest. And I get the strong impression, and I, I think I know that, 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 that you know, Hank, I'm not even sure I'm using his first name. We're not on a first name basis, but that's fine. You know, Detective Sergeant Nsinga, Inspector Nsinga now, does, you know, believes that a level of, you know, relations with the public and the media and the community is productive. And I think he showed that through this investigation. He held regular briefings um, to update, you know, the city on what was happening. He, he did call back journalists personally to tell them what was going on. He did try and recognize, and I think this is really crucial, he tried to recognize where the investigation was deficient and it wasn't adequate, which is more than I can say for the chief who spent you know, years over this investigation, gaslighting the community and trying to put responsibility back on them, which is, I still think, one of the most offensive things about the, re- the reaction to the, you know, the fallout of this, of this case. But, you know, Inspector Nsinga, you know, I think is one of those cops who are pushing, you know, policing in the right direction. I won't say everything he's done is perfect. That would be foolhardy. But I think, you know, there's, there's very good things at play there. And it wasn't just him. You know, his, his number two, D- D- Detective Dave Dickinson, you know, also, I think, was a driving force behind that, you know, really did. He was a little bit less in the spotlight, but I think really did a great job of building relationships with folks in the community and folks most impacted by this, this, this story and did so in a very, I think, smart way. Again, there was failures left, right and center here, but there are good aspects and there are good individuals who worked on this case. And friends and family of the victims, did you talk to those people as well? Yeah, you know, I, I, I you know, my philosophy in working on this story and working on this book was was not to push, right? Mm-hmm. Was not to arm twist people into talking to me. Um, you know, my belief is that there are people involved in this story who had to live with it. I mean, are still living with it in many respects but had to live with the constant waves of interest. So um, Skandaraj Navaratnam disappeared in 2010. His friends you know, and family organized around his disappearance, put up posters, you know, did searches through parks and ravines, pressured the cops, went to the media, did interviews, only to do it all again in 2013 when the cases were connected only to do it all again in 2017 when Andrew Kinsman went missing and the investigation started up all over again, only to do it all over again in 2018 when Bruce MacArthur was arrested, only to do it all over again at the trial. And in many ways are just constantly reliving it and are still getting inundated with demands and requests from film producers and, you know, other folks who want to write books and so on and so forth. My philosophy was I'm not going to keep pressuring those people. If they want to talk to me, I'm here and I would love the chat. If they don't, I'm not going to keep bothering them. You know, the benefit that I'll get or the, the public will get from understanding their story is not worth it if they have to go through hell to get there. So 
I did speak. I just I, I spoke to a, a huge number of friends and family and colleagues and associates and so on of these missing men. But there's many people I very conspicuously didn't talk to, and I'm frankly fine with that. I I know that there are still a lot of like I said producers and, and writers and so on who are banging down doors to try to get these people to talk. And and frankly, I think it's disgusting. I think it's really unfortunate that many of these people see their jobs as more important than these victims' mental well-being. Right. Great point. You researched, you wrote this book over the course of, what, five years? How? No, I mean, I never, I never imagined this being a book, frankly. I mean, I, I, I was always writing this as, uh, as news stories, right? Mm. Um, I ended up working on a podcast sort of a, around this case, not directly about it, but tangentially about it mm-hmm. for the CBC. Yeah. You know, this book has been this book has been the product of about I think two three years of work, um, but you know, obviously situated in five six years of, of research and, and 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 investigation. How has this case, the story, impacted you? Yeah, I, I get asked this a lot, and you know, and and frankly, you know, this is this is my job. I think I have good coping mechanisms to deal with. You know, this is not the first tragic or you know, grisly story I've I've handled. I don't, you know, I, I always tell other journalists that you have to be very careful. You have to be checking in with yourself and making sure that, you know, you're taking the appropriate precautions to make sure that your own mental health is not, you know, is, is, is safe through working through these stories to make sure that you don't end up with, um, you know, trauma stemming from, you know, you know this sort of work. Um, but I'm fine. I mean, you know, frankly, I think when I get that question, my, my, my impulse is always to deflect it and say, listen, you know, people love asking me that, but you know, there are dozens, if not hundreds of people who have been you know, horribly impacted by this story, who still, you know, can't go to work, who still have insomnia, who wake up terrified in the middle of the evening, you know, who have irrational fear, who, who are dealing with trauma, who are, you know, still suffering the consequences of, you know, these, these, this investigation, these cases, and these crimes. So, you know, I think those, you know, that's where the attention deserves to lie and figuring out a way in which to help those people, I think, you know, is still kind of core to what we should be talking about in the story because there's still a lot of damage being done. In some cases, the media and the public is exacerbating it. Um, but in many respects, you know, we don't, you know, as much as we like to tell ourselves that we have these great victim services, we don't. There's not the supports that we expect for victims of crime and for their friends and family. So missing from the village, when people read this book, and they should, what do you want your readers to come away with? I think I want them to come away, well, with a, with a few things, I suppose, you know, with the understanding that a lot of things about policing as a system are still really broken. You know, the, the recent calls to defund the police, I think are a great invitation to start engaging with some of those deficiencies, right? I mean, we're now having a real honest conversation about where our money goes. You know, is it wise for us to keep spending money on arresting sex workers and, you know, busting drug users and arresting men cruising in parks, especially when we're not doing, when they're not doing their damn job when it comes to homicide investigations or missing persons investigations. If there had been greater scrutiny 
years ago about the ways in which Toronto police were failing missing persons investigations, maybe this never would have happened. I think what I want people to take away from this is that these problems are not unsolvable. You know, they're, they're not you know, intractable. We can fix these things. We have a roadmap. We've had roadmaps for decades about what it means to seriously investigate a missing persons case, about what it means to, um, you know, actually work with communities who are marginalized or forgotten as opposed to over-policing them. You know, we know what it means to, you know, we learned a lot of these lessons after Robert Pickton was was arrested, you know, 20 years ago, and we ignored them. These things can get solved, you know, and, and kind of secondary to that, I think I want people to understand that there is harm being done sometimes when we engage with enter, true crime and entertainment. You know, this book was, I think this book is going to get, I think it is going to get lumped in with true crime books, but in many respects, it's not, you know, in many respects, I hate the true crime industry because it tells people that they have a right to these victim stories when in almost every respect they don't and real damage gets done. You know, I, there's a friend of, of one of the victims who, um, he was, who went down to do laundry one day and found a team of, of online sleuths looking through her laundry room for clues. Now, there are people who are getting inundated with messages and Facebook messages and emails and calls and texts, um, you know, demanding information about you know, what, what their friend did. In some cases, people have developed theories that the victims are were in fact in on it or one or more of them were actually working with Bruce MacArthur and this stuff has consequences this stuff you know hurts people and I think as long as we keep churning out true crime as an as, as an entertainment or a sport or pop culture we're doing a real disservice to these people and victimizing them all over again and nobody seems to care all that much about it Justin Ling, well said, powerful words. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Cheers. While it is critical we hold the police as an institution accountable for the failures that led to this story, it is also important we recognize the hard work and dedication of the officers assigned to these cases. Figuring out how to untangle the complicated relationship between queer people and the police, and indeed how we improve policing more broadly involves recognizing where police get it right. In my years of working on this story, I have found a real desire on the part of those officers to engage in critical self-reflection. So while this book is dedicated to the officers and investigators, I also hope it sparks more introspection about their relationship with the queer community. And finally, this book is dedicated to the queer community itself, a community that has been ridiculed, gaslighted, surveilled, targeted, and killed. It has been marginalized by police, government, and society at large. But through it all, it has survived with a culture and community that exists despite attempts to extinguish its uniqueness and in spite of those attempts. Missing from the Village is available wherever you get your favorite books. And for more on investigative journalist and author Justin Ling, justinling.ca. Taking us to hour two of Rainbow Country, Sea, Sex, and Sun, Serge Ginsburg. Hey. 
Hi, my name is Joanne Vanicola, and I'm an actor and a writer. And I was first on Rainbow Country with Mark Tara on discussing the massacre at Pulse Club in in Orlando.、Um, I realized how important it was for our community to have a radio station,、uh, specifically for our issues, to to talk about people in in the LGBTQ community and to provide a, an outlet for our stories,、um, to discuss. Uh, our politics, culture, and give voice to the to the issues that matter to us, and of course our artists and and、um, the things that we do globally, and, and talk about culture. And without people like Mark Tara、uh, providing a space for this with with a radio show like this, then、uh, we wouldn't have that voice. So support, tune in. Thank you. Hi, this is Police Constable Danielle Botno, also known as LGBT Cop, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. This is hour two of Rainbow Country, where I feature music from LGBT recording artists, independent recording artists, plus voices that you know and love in classic disco, classic eighties, classic house. So if you stay with me, if you stick with me, I hope you think I'm bringing you music worth hearing. Starting us off, a three-song Canadian eighties set. Thank、you 
We just heard "Let It Go," Luba. Before that, "Don't Walk Past," Blue Peter. And starting off that three-song Canadian '80s set, "Living on Video," Transax. You can stream these artists, Luba, Blue Peter, Transax, on Spotify. Up next, a three-song Parachute Club set.
We just heard sexual intelligence. Before that, slip away. And starting off that three-song Parachute Club set, Boys Club. They had three top forty hits: "Rise Up," "At the Feet of the Moon," and "Love Is Fire." Parachute Club was known for being one of the first mainstream pop acts in Canada to integrate world music influences like reggae and soca into their sound. You can stream Parachute Club on Spotify. Up next, a three-song electronic set.
Heard I O U. Before that, burn out the sun, and starting off that three-song electronic set, pool party. Those three tracks from indie artist Santino, and for all things Santino, music by Santino. dot com. Up next, a three-song Canadian rock set. Self-own. 
we just heard Heavy from Pterodactyl Problems. That track is off of their current record, Esoteric Hobbies. Before that, I'm Begging from Queens and Kings. And starting off that three-song Canadian rock set, Waiting from Running Violet. You can find those groups, Pterodactyl Problems, Queens and Kings, and Running Violet on Spotify. Up next, a two-song folk set. Near the town of Chester on Nova Scotia's shore A treasure once was buried, boys, many years before Beneath the towering oak trees, never to be found Captain Kidd's great treasure lies buried in the ground Now listen to my tale, boys, and gather close around For if it's gold you're looking for, I'll tell you where it's found Far beneath the turf it lies, Oak Island, where it's hid Buried many years ago by Captain William Kidd Captain Kidd, Captain Kidd, treasure he did hide Many men have searched before and many men have died Captain Kidd, Captain Kidd, treasure he did hide Many men have searched before and many men have died While standing on the gallows, these last words Kid did say If I had my freedom, this price to you I'd pay I'd give you all my plunder, it's buried in the ground Enough to make a chain of gold around all London town The rope was placed around his neck, he wouldn't no more set sail Nor set his foot upon the deck, or lean across the rail His secret he took with him as they watched him choke. That's why they'll search forever on that island known as Oak. Captain Kidd, Captain Kidd, treasure he did hide. Many men have searched before and many men have died. Captain Kidd, Captain Kidd, treasure he They say many men have searched before And many men have died One more man will die Maybe we could stay In our hearts It was so easy as a child Now I'm older And I feel more apart I know the life we had Will never fade away And now the time has come To wipe the tears away
We just heard "My Star," and starting off that two-song folk set, Captain Kid. Those two tracks are from folk artist Kendall Partington, off of his current record, Milestones. For all things Partington, KendallPartington.ca. Don't forget to keep up to date with all things country, Rainbow Country. Follow me on socials at Mark Tara Music. Would you like to be a guest on Rainbow Country in 2021? Well, get in touch. Send me an email, Mark at MarkTara dot com. The podcast for Rainbow Country is available on all major platforms. The official Rainbow Country playlist is out on Spotify. And everything is hooked up at marktara. dot com. Finally, I want to take this time to thank you for taking your time to be with me on this very first episode of twenty twenty one. Remember, be well, be strong, be safe. Hi, this is Emily Saliers from Indigo Girls, and you're listening to Rainbow Country. Mm-hmm.